Welcome back to the Agency X podcast. We're going to start doing something new. Uh, we're going to call it this week in e-commerce. However, it might not always be this week, uh, depending on when you're listening to it. Uh, so we might have to rethink that title. However, we're just going to go through some e-commerce news, some things that have been going on that stood out for us and things that are going to impact uh, how we operate and also uh, merchants and uh, things in this whole e-commerce space. This episode is sponsored by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the number one e-commerce help desk that lets you manage and respond to messages from your site, social, email, and SMS all in one platform. They have built-in automations to handle common queries like order tracking and save your team time and money. Get a free month by clicking the link in the description and elevate your customer experience today. You're listening to the Agency X Podcast. I'm your host, John Sertikowski, founder and CEO at Avix, a New York City-based e-commerce agency for high-growth D2C brands. As always, I'm joined by our e-commerce strategist, David Anzalone. Our goal is to provide some insight into e-commerce, technology, design, and everything in between. Let us know what you think of today's episode and make sure to visit our website, avexdesigns.com. Uh, the first thing we're going to cover today is going to be Shopify markets. Uh, so back in September, Shopify announced a global e-commerce hub for merchants, uh, and it, and they also added B2B features to uh, Shopify Plus. So uh, they're making more of a push towards uh, larger merchants. With Shopify markets, it attempts to alleviate difficulties uh, merchants face with cross-border commerce, things like language barriers and uh, local regulations, uh, as well as currencies and, and things like that that were that used to require maybe two stores to be able to, or two Shopify Plus instances to be able to accomplish. Uh, so it's really great that they're rolling out this functionality. So this initiative is in line with Shopify's shift towards um, supporting larger merchants. Uh, this is similar to their partnerships with Oracle and Microsoft uh, as far as ERP integrations go. Uh, additionally, um, with Avalara, something called cross-border uh, estimated. It's a new patent pending feature of Avalara um, cross-border initiative. I'm not exactly sure of the name, but what it does is it, it integrates with Shopify markets, or perhaps it's going to be um, um, integrated or come natively with Shopify markets. Uh, they'll be able to calculate the appropriate duty and import taxes at checkout without requiring tariff codes. So this is something that sounds really boring, but it's probably something that is a pain in the butt for merchants who are trying to go international. Uh, and this should make it a lot easier. Uh, the feature uses Avalara's artificial intelligence engine and global compliance content database to generate landed cost pricing, determining duty and import tax requirements for more than 180 countries. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds awesome. It sounds like it's going to save merchants a lot of headaches and time, which in turn can save us a lot of headaches and time. Um, Avalara says that it provides customers with landed cost est estimates in the cart in real time to reduce unexpected costs and uh, costs at delivery. That sounds awesome because it's going to save merchants uh some money too uh so shopify market sounds really cool uh, i know that you could sign up for it now and then get notified when it's available we already have some merchants who've been inquiring about it 
next on the list is Pinterest live shopping. Uh, I'm not the biggest Pinterest fan. I don't use the platform too much, but this really stood out uh, because of the direction that it's going. So with Pinterest TV, creators can showcase and tag products to let users purchase them on the merchant's website, which sounds really awesome. They're going to have episodes air each weekday and will be recorded recorded and available for users to watch on demand. Um, to me, what this says is this really is one of the early indicators for uh, live shopping, social commerce, things that a lot of people have been talking about, but not necessarily doing it right. And it is a small but important step towards that. Um, social commerce, live commerce is really big in China. And I've been talking about this for a while. They're light years ahead of us when it comes to this channel, um, amongst other things, but uh, it's very popular out there. And I can imagine live shopping, social commerce, all of those things becoming more and more popular here in the States. Uh, so those are two things that really stood out. Um, three things also happened, um, maybe not in the last week, but in the last year or less. Um, three really notable, notable brands that started and grew on Shopify, uh, either went public or announced public offerings. Figs, who sell um, like scrubs and, and clothing for uh, doctors and nurses, dentists and whatnot. Uh, they just recently went, went public. Allbirds recently went public, who've been on Shopify forever and are probably one of the most notable Shopify Plus brands and seen some tremendous growth. Now publicly publicly traded company, which is huge. Um, and just the D2C space is starting to really grow up. Uh, and another uh, announcement, uh, although I don't think they're public yet, they announced an IPO through an SPAC is Black Rifle Coffee, which I'm a big fan of. And I've seen them grow up on Shopify as well. So it just seems like a lot of brands are just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, that leads to the question when a lot of merchants ask us, is Shopify going to be able to scale with us? Um, well, I mean, if you want to grow to be a publicly traded company worth billions of dollars, and then yeah, Shopify could probably scale with you. Um, maybe that's was not right for maybe everyone. Maybe that was Casper's problem. Possibly, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard about that. That 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 actually just happened where um, they ended up selling into private equity and renouncing their IPO. Um, um, they also had a lot I think of that's just more other, of their business yeah. model than anything. They had a lot of other <laughs> problems too, but um, it's interesting. Some companies make it, some some don't. I, I do actually wonder if going IPO, like a Shopify brand, like Allbirds, for example, which is probably like, mm -hmm. I think since that one, I, I want to say it's a watch company, since they went to Salesforce, uh, Allbirds has kind of become- MVMT. Yeah, MVMT. Yeah. Allbirds has kind of become the poster child of like a Shopify merchant. I wonder if that- reflects at all on Shopify's own stock price. I imagine there's probably some subtle impact there. Well, I mean, I, I mean, they're using it as a marketing yeah. tool. I think it's just one more way for them to be able to show that they could support smaller merchants all the way through to kind of like enterprise yeah. brands. I mean, if you look at Gymshark, Gymshark is valued at over a billion dollars now. They're a global brand. They're on Shopify Plus. Kith, who was one of our clients, they're a gigantic brand. They're still on Shopify Plus. MVMT was the watch company you're talking about. They, yes, they sold, I believe, to Movado a couple of years ago, and they moved to Salesforce. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that was a reason, like, I don't think that was like a decision of, well, Shopify might not be big enough. It's because, it's because their enough. other brands were on Salesforce. So exactly. it was just internally easier, but 
internal um, decision. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, to keep everything the same. Yeah. Um, next up, where would we be without e-commerce news? Without talking a little bit about some Avix announcements. So I'm going to just pick out three. A lot of things are going on. And we've done a lot of things. There's probably more to this list, but we want to save them so we don't have we don't run out of stuff to talk about. Um, but a few things. One, uh, Enjoy Life, which is a Mondelez brand and a brand that I've been a huge fan of for years. Uh, we recently launched their Clavio email marketing campaigns, optimizing their flows as well as refresh their web, their Shopify Plus store. Um, with their new branding, which was really exciting to work with them and launch that. Uh, and we're continuing to work with them to optimize their site for conversions. And I recently spoke to um, uh, the, the head of marketing or the VP of marketing, as well as uh, the other, uh, another person that from Injure Life that we've been dealing with. And I believe they're going to come on the podcast and do a little bit of uh, an interview about uh, growing the brand, marketing, D2C, CPG, and all that. So that's really interesting. And something I'm looking forward to. Uh, another thing is we just did a webinar. Director of Client Services Veronica uh, recently appeared on a Dynamic Yield webinar to talk about personalization, especially when it comes to CRO and testing and things like that for the holidays. Uh, so make sure to check that out. Um, it already aired, but it's pre-recorded, so you can check it out. Uh, if, if you need the link, feel free to hit us up and we'll be able to make sure to get that to you. Uh, we've been really growing our dynamic yield partnership. A lot of really great brands that we're bringing onto the platform are working to personalize their customer experiences, test them, optimize them, and help them increase conversion. So really great tool there. I also recently spoke to dynamic yield about them coming on to talk about these things. Uh, so we should have someone from DY coming on as a guest. Uh, finally, uh, Shogun, we've been uh, working with Shogun for quite a while, but we have an official partnership with them, especially with their uh, front end product, really exciting things coming out with that product when it comes to headless, uh, but making headless easier. Um, so I think that there's a unique place for Shogun, uh, given their vast experience with uh, their page builder tool and all the different brands that are on it. So looking forward to some of the things that come out of that partnership. We already have one Shogun front end build under our belt with uh, one blade shave. That case study is live on our website if you want to check it out. Uh, and that's it. That's all we have for this week in e-commerce news. Now onto our topic. <clears throat> so today we're talking about how to identify e-commerce conversion rate killers. Uh, this is something, David, I'm sure you can speak to a lot of, um, but we're going to cover a few things. So uh, where did you want to kind of kick it off? Uh, yeah, and I think I can begin by talking about, um, well, first introducing the fact that uh, with a lot of things in e-commerce, especially when it comes to conversion rate optimization, there's no such thing as like a one size fits all. It'll be on a case by case basis. That said, there are a few things that we always look at consistently to identify where some of the gaps are within a brand's website. And that's looking at where their landing traffic is. And I think I brought this up on another podcast episode, but to kind of reiterate it within this, this topic is, you know, uh, for the most part, we focus on looking at landing page traffic when it comes to the homepage, uh, collection pages, like the groups of pages, and then PDPs, because that is where 70 to like 80, 90% of traffic is going to land. Otherwise, it'll either be 
um, either like special landing pages. Uh, it might be like the Carter checkout if like a user is trying to reconvert. But for the most part, it's those three page types, home, collection, mm -hmm. and PDP. And so what we look at is uh, traffic distribution based on revenue distribution for those users. So let's say, for example, right, um, on collection pages, collection pages are responsible for, I don't know, 10% of landing page traffic, which is low, but they're generating like, you know, 5% of overall revenue. That's normal. Like that's something that we look at and we're like, the reason why revenue percentage is so low is because they're not driving a lot of traffic there, which to be honest is probably appropriate for a collection page because for the most part, we tend to see the lowest conversions on a collection page outside of very specific instances like restocks or new drops, that kind of thing, depending on the industry you're in. But if we see, and I've seen this a couple of times with uh, with a couple of our clients where, you know, landing page traffic to like PDPs is as high as 50 or 60%, but revenue percentage from those users is something like 13 to 15%. That yeah. that shows a potential issue because you're sending a lot of traffic to pages that are not converting well. And so that's going to contribute to a low. You're going to see it on the conversion rate, too. And so that's like the first thing I look at, because that's the quickest way to identify a potential problem. And then we then contextualize it by looking at, you know, where is the traffic coming from? Is it from like paid media? Is it organic? Um you know, looking at heat maps. So we try to contextualize, is there something about the user experience that's contributing negatively to why people are, are bouncing? And, you know, for the most part, we try to eliminate the variable of ad creative, because if you're driving a lot of, you know, let's say traffic through like paid media, you know, we're not a paid media agency, we don't have anything to do with ads. So we try to eliminate that variable. But that's usually the first thing we look at. And so that's what honestly, every brand should keep track of you know, where people are landing on their website and how many of them are, are contributing to your overall revenue. Because if you see something like I described, you know, high traffic, low purchase percentage, that can indicate a problem. But at the same time, if you have mid to lower traffic distribution, but high revenue, perhaps you're not driving enough traffic to those pages and you should probably either redirect yeah. your paid spend there or try to funnel more people in like your social links. I mean, I see all the time in social, like the link in bio, they'll pull off collection pages, be the landing page. And it's usually like, don't, don't do that. Have like a very specific offer or, or take them to the homepage. Yeah. Even people, the homepage converts way better than I think a lot of people give it credit for. And I've seen time and time again, that the homepage is usually a pretty good converter, even for paid well, customers are used to it. Yeah. Customers are used to going to the homepage. So I, I agree. Um, I agree there. Yeah. So that's like, that's like the baseline, um, regardless of what the brand is. That's, that's the process I'd say we always follow to identify like conversion yeah, it, killers. In short, that's great. Uh, high traffic, low revenue pages, focus on them. How can you optimize them? And then look at some of your other pages that are getting traffic and see what's going on there and see if you should be driving traffic to some of these other pages or um, focus on the high converting pages and fixing the ones that are not converting. Um, great, that's a great place to start. Uh, another thing is um, testing for page speed. Now, this is something that you know Shopify does in, in the dashboard or if you run it through some tests, they're not <laughs> entirely accurate. For better or worse, yeah, they're not entirely accurate, but you need to be doing certain things 
um, grab the low hanging fruit and make sure you're doing these regardless of what that page speed score is. So evaluate your content and optimize it. Look at what you're doing. Are you saving PNGs and uploading super high res files that, you know, it needs to be compressed and you're uploading the largest file possible? Save it out in Photoshop or whatever other tools, minimize it, compress it, <clears throat> optimize all of your content. Have a process for when you're adding products, when you're adding content to the homepage or blog posts or whatever it is, make sure you're optimizing that content. Uh, be mindful of where you run tests, because as David said, it's kind of, you know, could be tricky. Um, and take that with a grain of salt. <clears throat> and then have your developers minimize code, look at JavaScript. You know, if you are a high growth brand, maybe you're doing five, 10 million plus at a minimum, you might want to explore headless because this is where that page speed optimization is going to come in. And that's absolutely going to help with conversions. Um, but, you know, even for brands that are doing 20 to 50 million or plus, headless might not be the right approach for you. There's plenty of brands that are doing um, tens of millions or hundreds of millions that are not headless. Uh, you have to have the infrastructure to support it. It shouldn't only be to have a fast site or a high converting site. It has to, you have to understand what, what comes along with headless. But those are some things you need to do when looking at page speed. Make sure that your code, your site is coded properly, minimizing things, removing code blow and extra JavaScript and, and things like that, uh, and optimizing your content. Uh, that's, you know, really low hanging fruit that I think a lot of merchants could either do themselves um, or bring on their development team, if you have one internally or, or work with an agency to do that. And, uh, yeah. and that's absolutely something that helps with, with increasing conversions and search engine ranking, of course. And, and if I might add on to that, um, something through testing that we like to explore that by itself would be controversial if not for the fact that we do A-B testing with it is actually seeing, um, I'll you go to the example of like a PDP again, um, which does tend to have a pretty higher traffic distribution for landing overall. Sometimes content sections, either ones that we build or already exist on a brand's website when we start working with them, they might be really nice content sections, uh, usually below the fold, that just because of how the section is built or the functionality, might just overall contribute to page load, right? And sometimes you can, you know, while it's very tough to actually test speed improvements, like in terms of like show a variation where you made no speed update, show a variation where you did, because you can't really do that with imagery, that's tough to do, but you can take away, let's say, okay, let's hide this. We find out this content section is contributing a lot to the page load. Let's hide it and let's see if it even matters. Like, does the user, does it actually have an impact on like the conversion rate? Will a user care or will that bump up in speed to a, have a greater lift in a user wanting to convert? And so that's something I do like recommending is that, you know, as, as married as brands could be to some content sections, sometimes it's worth testing if the improved page load speed from hiding that section or just kind of not loading it has a bigger impact on a user's likelihood to convert than if it existed at all. Maybe the content section isn't as important as you think it is. And that's mm -hmm. why we always recommend testing that. It's a, it's honestly, it's a great way to, to also prove to a lot of brands and our own clients that, you know, sometimes the most important thing is just a really well-working site. Content is super important. I think, you know, John, you, you're like the king of content yeah. in a lot of ways, <laughs> but uh, sometimes, you know, there's content that's really important. And then other times it's a nice to have, but it's yeah. not necessary. Yeah. And honestly, it depends on the brand <laughs> yeah, too. That's true. 
And that's something like, for example, like I, I got an REI gift card for my birthday and I was browsing REI. And to be honest, I don't care about REI's content. I'm really there for a product. Like I'm there for, I know to go to REI because maybe they put out enough content in social media or marketing that I know what I'm buying at REI because it's specific things for outdoor, um, outdoor sports, outdoor recreation, things like that. So they did a good job at developing a brand that people know, same thing with Patagonia or, or something like that. Um, but I don't really care as much about the story. Um, and then there's other brands that you really want to know who they are and know their story and, and, and read more about them. And, um, you know, you care about the lifestyle content and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And you can get more specific too, with like targeting. Um, I mean, for example, if you, um, if you felt like if we, you know, again, just through like testing, right. And the dynamic yield is great because one of the best things about dynamic yield is for any experience or test that you run, you can actually see how performance for, you know, metrics like AOV purchases revenue, how it differs between acquisition source, like paid search, um, you know, direct based on mm -hmm. audience group device type. So you might find that something converts or something contributes really well to conversions on mobile, but not, but not desktop. And same thing for user type, like returning versus new, you might find that these content sections aren't important for returning users because they know your, if, you, if they know your brand story, they don't, they probably don't need a lot of the lifestyle content as much because they know you guys. But if you mm -hmm. wanted to, for example, run an experience where on PDPs for new customers, you maybe have that content there, or you have some kind of content that's a little bit greater, but for returning users or people that bought before, you just hide that content on the PDP outside of like the main essential, you know, information, right? It's because they don't need that. And you might find that just through iterative testing. So there's always segmentation that can be done to make sure mm -hmm. that you're serving content to people that need it and not serving unnecessary content to the people that don't. Um, and that's why these tools are so powerful, but I agree yeah. again, one size, there's no one size fits all approach here. And I think segmentation does a great job at making sure that you're targeting things appropriately. I'm a huge fan of segmenting and my mind is blown when I see brands who are doing five, 10, 15, 20 million in revenue and aren't segmenting and they're not personalizing or A-B testing, not only on site, but through email, through email, you're leaving millions of dollars on the table because there's so much that could be tested and optimized and personalized and segmented where you're providing a more curated experience. A lot of brands, they may say, oh, we want to elevate our experience. We want to provide a better customer experience. And they really think that's just around like UX design or like the look and feel of their site. But if you're a brand that's selling men's and women's in various different categories and you're not segmenting, if you're not personalizing, you know, of course, if you're a smaller brand and you can't afford to do it, there's there are affordable ways to do it. There are affordable ways if you know what you're doing. But if you're a brand doing five plus million and you're not taking advantage of that, especially in email too, in email, not only on-site segmenting, but email, being able to segment your customers very um, detailed, not just, hey, this is men's and this is women's. It should be really detailed based off of customer actions and then serving them content. You need to get granular with that um, because that's the way brands start to scale and grow and really start to get the edge.
um, uh, and beyond dynamic yield, there's other tools that we use. Yeah, like OmniConvert, um, which, um, and this will mm -hmm. actually get into the next thing, um, sort of last subject we want to get on regards to this is um, like a tool like OmniConvert and other platforms that exist, which are, I, I would consider like testing platforms versus experience platforms. DY is very much an experience-based platform. There are a lot of things for smaller brands. I mean, larger brands too, but smaller brands tend to have these issues where there's mm -hmm. absence of what we call best practices on a website to give a really, really quick example is like a sticky uh, navigation menu. That's where when you scroll down the page, you know, the navigation sticks to the top of the the screen. Um, I'm sure we've, you've, we've all been on websites that do that. Most, most even kind of do that now. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're looking through a site, right? Like you've gone through your due diligence of looking at their analytics, seeing where people are going, seeing where the gaps are, and you're attempting to identify, you know, are there some missing best practices or features on your website that might be really important to have? That could be anything like having like what I described before, uh, a sticky navigation menu, having, having a, uh, a call out for shipping and returns details on your PDPs, because that's a really important aspect for, uh, mm -hmm. your website, or even an absence of like a free shipping promotion if your brand doesn't do free shipping. And operationally, you're able to support that in some means. It's really important to implement, but, and something we've been got, getting a lot better at doing, which is, I think, a really strong point about like growth X, um, in, in addition to like managed services, which is more of a traditional uh, design dev relationship, is that whenever we recommend best practices, like the ones I just described, we can actually test them and make sure that they are contributing positively to the user experience. Because to be very honest, uh, there are some instances where there are best practices that, you know, you, we implement and we do find through testing that while in general, like all the data stuff like Bimard, which mm -hmm. is like a UX uh, think tank that basically says, you know, this is the best thing to do. Um, you don't always know because there's it depends on like the audience, especially for ones. Um, one of the brands we work with, they have an older audience, something in like the 50, 40s, like 50s age range, which I know, quote unquote, old. But for for like an e-commerce website user, there's definitely like a learning curve there compared to someone like in their 20s and 30s. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, that ageist comment aside, uh, there are things where it for like you know, best practice, they might, we've gotten, you know, the brand was like, oh, we got complaints about this thing. And we're like, yeah, we're, we're seeing through testing. It's not doing well either. And we adapt to that and we contextualize it. I mean, even recently for uh, one of the fashion brands that we have, um, I even asked like a few people saying, hey, is there anything of this purchase in this, within this like website experience that you can think is confusing just off the top of your head? And they mentioned that the size guide was hard to find, even though we implemented the size guide right in the size options. And it, it's even by Mart is like, yeah, that's like a best practice, put it there. The way it's implemented is apparently not super obvious to find mm. and it gets easily missed. And I would never think that because I also know what to look for. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, you know, more experienced in this specifically because that's kind of what we do, but you don't know unless you test it. And that's why no, it's, it's really important, even for best practice. Like we've gotten talks before where our clients are like, oh, let's just implement this feature. We know it works well. We've heard it works really well. Um, we just hadn't done it before. And I'm like, wait, why don't we just test it first? It, it costs nothing to test it in a way, assuming you already have the platform, right? Like if we're working with a client on GrowthX, they already have 
a platform that can handle testing, it costs them nothing to actually run that test. Yeah. Um, because we might find like, and there's a lot of cases we run a test almost expecting it to do well because we know, but you don't actually know until you yeah. it validates it, it, it. You need to eat. very much yeah. validates it. And it's also great for and, solving um uh the decisions of if there's like back and forth and this has actually solved a lot of these conversations i've had both internally and with clients where there's a back and forth on should we have something on the left or right or this and that and my response is usually let's just let's just test that rather test than it. bicker i mean you can't it. argue with that no you, you can't. can't argue with that because it's like well look neither of you are right the only way we're going to find it out is through data and that's the super important yeah. thing now you know putting that aside like you know of course there's brand decisions and things you want to do sure. because it's on brand yes. or you know your customers um but yeah especially with you know right now everything's crazy because of black friday cyber monday it's a great time to test though but um if as long as you set up those tests prior but like throughout the year especially when there's a little bit of a slow time that's when you want to start testing things like the size guide placement or where it is and start looking at these little pieces to see well what's going to help customers because you might not always get that feedback like yeah we could ask people um what might be confusing here but you're not always going to get customers saying hey one good place is to look, and this is where integrations with like Gorgeous or, um, you know, um, other tools, look at your customer support tickets that are coming in. Uh, I mean, if you're, you don't have to look through all of them, but like uh, there's ways to search through them. There's ways to segment them. There's a way to have automation there or even talk to your customer support team and figure out um, what's the most common thing that's coming up and start a list of things that keep coming up repetitively and then test those things um to see where there can be improvement because you like you david like you just said like even if there's a problem you don't necessarily know exactly what the solution is unless you test it so you may want to try a few different things and it's a very cost effective way that could have a high impact because if it ends up increasing your conversion rate by a percentage point or increases your um, average order value by x percent that can be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or even if it's not even if it's only a tens of thousands of dollars or something, depending on the size of your brand, could be very much well worth that investment of time uh, to just go the extra mile. And, and even and the uh, larger no, brands. Well, yeah, just before that, it. I was going to say like, for the smaller brands or mid-market brands that are out there, you want to know what those larger brands are doing and how that they're, they're testing everything and they're personalizing everything. They are running so many different tests on the site and personalizing it that you know, they're doing that all day long. And that's where some of these smaller mid-market brands could really compete as well is, is, is to get the jump on that. Um, no, for, for, for sure. I mean, and uh, to add to that, what uh, uh, Jeremy Horowitz, he's, he's a great a guy. He's, uh, he's part of Dacity, which is that um, data analytics aggregate platform, mm -hmm. which um, have not personally gotten to use enough, but very fascinated with. And he always says one of the first things that he does and recommends to other brands is, um, in addition to the support tickets, like you mentioned, going through actual like customer reviews, again, you can't read a million of them, right? Depending on how popular your products yeah. are, but it's very easy to just, you know, comb through uh, your site reviews, looking at uh, Instagram, um, you know, for an example, uh, I, I name drop them a lot and I won't focus too much on them, but uh, Magic Spoon, the only reason they, when they started offering bundles, like build your own bundle, they only knew that 
because half of the comments they'd get on their Instagram posts were, hey, is, there, is it possible for us to make custom bundles instead of these pre-made ones? And that yeah. information, you know, their customer service team is really great at finding and, and validating. But no, I mean, overall, those are all really important things that you need to do. And if you're a smaller brand, smaller brands are going to want to test more of the UX of their website, whereas larger brands can really dive into personalization and segmentation. Mm-hmm. And my last thing on that is where to find user feedback. I've probably said it before in a couple of other episodes, but the easiest thing you can do is make a Google form, send it through like a Klaviyo email. And if you really want to, you can be like, hey, and fill out this survey and get like a 10% off code off your next purchase, whatever, something small, some kind of reward, because the people that are going to be the most vocal and give you the best feedback are your own customers. And you want to make sure that, you know, you have data. And a lot of these platforms we talked about give you that data, but there's honestly something you can't, there's, you can never replicate hearing feedback from real people because they'll honestly tell you things about how to improve your store or like user experience that you'd never think of. And the data would never tell you. Yeah. The data is just going to be numbers. Like you said before, sometimes even the best studies and the best practices (laughs) based off of data is you have to test it with your customers and even get real feedback from your customers. Even because even if it helps a small percentage of your customers, you know, it might still be very impactful to the bottom line. And also if your goal is to provide a great customer experience, you want to make sure that you're, um, you're providing that to everyone uh, uh, across the board. All right. So I think we had some really good tips there, ways that you can identify these conversion killers, page speed, testing, best practices, looking at analytics. Um, Yeah. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. And uh, we have some more CRO topics coming up on uh, upcoming podcasts.